Six different men picked those songs? What event in American history is tied closely to 271, Nearer My God to Thee? Sinking of the Titanic. On the way to church this evening, my children were asking me, how cold was the water? How long could you last? What was it like? Because they saw a little bit of snow and a little bit of ice, and they were thinking about the sinking of the Titanic. The best records we have, some question them. Of course, everyone today wants to question them. But as that great ship stood up on its end and slid under the icy waters of the North Atlantic, those that were going to meet their quick watery grave in those frozen waters were singing, Nearer my God to thee. And I hope that those in this assembly at this hour who may have some stony griefs will humbly bless the Most High God if he can use those stony griefs to bring them nearer to him. I hope that you saw those first four verses were about stony griefs. It's all worth it if we come closer to the Lord. Any pain or suffering or loss, if it drives us closer to the Lord Jesus Christ, then it's well worth it. Praise his name. We'll raise our Bethel. Acts chapter 9, please. I'm not going to take very long. I have a lot of verses. I want you to see the Lord Jesus Christ. Why do we have the book of Acts, and why am I preaching through Acts? The book of Acts was written by Luke to a man named Theophilus, as was his gospel of Luke, that Theophilus might know the certainty of the things about the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ walked on this earth, and he touched lives in glorious ways of salvation spiritually, physical deliverance. He's a mighty God and a king, and he walked on this earth, and he did things that are recorded in sacred history for us to read and to rejoice in and to have comfort and strength from them that that same Lord Jesus Christ sits on high as your Savior and friend and deliverer, and he can help you also. Amen. If there's anyone here tonight that thinks themselves a greater sinner than me, then I want you to know that the book of Acts is written about, in particular, about a man named Saul of Tarsus. And Saul of Tarsus would say of himself, in arguing with you or me, that he was the chiefest of sinners. He said that in 1 Timothy chapter 1 when he wrote another minister. It'd be easy when ministers wrote one another not to think of those parts of their lives that are so negative, but when the Apostle Paul wrote by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he wrote and told Timothy, his son in the ministry, that if there'd ever been a chief of sinners, it was he himself. But the Lord had saved him. And so when you see what the Lord Jesus Christ is about to do to Saul of Tarsus, it should give courage to your hearts. And I want to remind you of something without turning there to 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 12 through 16, in which we're told very specifically that Paul was saved by the Lord Jesus Christ, great grace and favor and love that was in Christ Jesus as an example, so that all of us can see that Jesus Christ can save the greatest of sinners. There's no sinner too great for Jesus Christ. In fact, if you know the heart of God and the heart of Christ, He seeks out those great sinners in order to save them, to show His grace and His glory. Amen. We want to see Jesus of Nazareth in the book of Acts. We want to see the effect that it had on the churches of Jesus Christ, that we might be a church like them. Amen. We were introduced to a man named Saul of Tarsus in Acts chapter 7. 
When the Jews stoned Stephen, they laid down their coats at the feet of one named Saul of Tarsus, a young man. We then saw in the first sentence of chapter 8, and Saul was consenting unto his death. Saul was a vicious enemy of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. He was consumed with a hatred for the name Jesus of Nazareth. Because in that name, he saw a threat to the Jews' religion. He saw a radically different religion that was overthrowing confidence in the Jewish sacrificial system. And many people were following this man, Jesus of Nazareth. And being the zealot that he was, full of zeal, a young man, he pursued saints to their death, put them into prison, tortured them, slaughtered them, forced them to blaspheme because he thought he was honoring God by protecting the Jews' religion. A vicious enemy of the church. The the greatest enemy of the church that we read in the early chapters of the book of Acts. He stood there at Stephen's death, a young man. The older men did the job. He stood there and kept their coats. But you'll notice, he wanted him dead. He consented unto his death. Even though Stephen had given all the indications that God was with him. His face was shining like an angel. He preached a perfect sermon. He had just performed miracles. He saw Jesus Christ standing at the right hand of God. And as he died, he prayed for his persecutors. And Saul went ahead and kept the coats and consented unto his death. And we come to Acts chapter 9. And Saul, yet breathing out threatenings and slaughter against the disciples of the Lord, went unto the high priest and desired of him letters to Damascus, to the synagogues, that if he found any of this way, whether they were men or women, he might bring them bound unto Jerusalem. This is a hard man. He didn't care about sex discrimination. He wasn't going to discriminate. If they followed Jesus of Nazareth, he wanted them bound, and he would haul them back to Jerusalem to be punished, as you can tell in other places. In the book of Acts, as we'll read over the coming weeks. This man had authority from the chief priests. He was well known. And he went with written documentation that he had authority to go into the synagogues up there, do whatever inquisition was necessary to find out where the saints were living, to have them bound and to haul them back to Jerusalem. A great enemy. You know there were prayers going up to be saved from the Apostle Paul. I wonder how many prayers were going up that the Apostle Paul would be saved. But praise be to God. Now, brethren, if you've got hearts that love the Lord Jesus Christ, I want, to see, I want you to see the Lord Jesus Christ reach down from his glorified position in heaven and arrest a man. Amen. I know you know this story. I know you've known it for 50 years. But rejoice with me tonight for a few minutes. And as he journeyed, he came near Damascus. And suddenly... There shined round about him a light from heaven, and he fell to the earth. Now, what kind of a light makes you drop to the earth? It's a bright light. This testimony is given three times in the book of Acts. Does that tell you that it might be important for us to study it? It's given in chapter 9 by Luke. It's given in chapter 22 by Paul to the Jewish nation, and it's given in chapter 26 by Paul to King Agrippa. Three times we have this testimony of his conversion. And in the other places, we pick up little facts that aren't here. So I'm just going to throw them in. Just trust me that we're going to run into them later. It was noon, brethren. 
at noon, have you ever laid in the sun and looked straight up at noon? The sun's kind of bright, isn't it? Amen. Isn't it at its zenith? Yep. The brightness of the sun at noon, a light shone round about him that knocked him to the earth. The, the uh, other testimonies also tell us that it was the glory of that light. Right. Now, when I read those words, the glory of that light that was above the brightness of the sun in Acts chapter 26, it tells us that. I remember some words of the Apostle Paul himself who said that Jesus Christ dwells in a light that no man can approach unto. And so when that light shines, you fall to the earth. And that's where Saul of Tarsus fell. Amen. And he fell to the earth and heard a voice saying unto him. This is personal, brethren. It's always personal because Jesus Christ can deal with you personally and me personally, and there's no mixture nor diminishing of his affection, power, or attention. This was a personal dealing with the Saul of Tarsus. He falls to the ground and hears a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? Look at how personal he makes it. Why persecutest thou me? Now this is a voice from heaven with a light that has knocked him to the ground. He knows he's dealing with the God of Israel. And so he says, Who art thou, Lord? He knows he's God, but he... He wants to know a little bit more about this God that has just knocked him down on the road to Damascus. Now, brethren, just listen to the, word, the answer to the question, Who art thou, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom thou persecutest. I am Jesus. Here's the Apostle Paul with letters in his pocket from the chief priests in Jerusalem to Damascus, that if he finds any in the city of Damascus that are worshiping in the name of Jesus, he has permission and authority to bind them and to bring them back to Jerusalem. And he is on the ground with a light above the brightness of the sun at noon, and he hears a voice, he knows it's God, he asks him for further identification, and this... God, the mighty God, says, I am Jesus, whom thou persecutest. Would you swallow? I am Jesus, whom thou persecutest. It is hard for thee to kick against the pricks. Now, brethren, I started by just wanting to remind you of what Saul of Tarsus witnessed at the stoning of Stephen. It is hard for thee to kick against the pricks. The pricks are what you do to a beast of burden with a goad. A goad was a long stick with a sharp point in the end. If you had a couple of oxen or one oxen in front of you pulling a cart, a plow or whatever, and you needed to pick up the pace a little bit, all you had to do was stick that ox in his rear quarters and he would pick up the pace a little bit. If it was an untrained ox, it would kick. And this figure of speech is used throughout the Bible. Kick against the pricks. An untrained bullock might kick back. But one that's been trained would know there's more of that coming if I don't pick up the pace. And so the Lord Jesus Christ uses that figure of speech and says to Paul, it is hard for thee to kick against the pricks. 
He had seen the miracles. He knew about the miracles. This thing wasn't done in secret, the Lord Jesus Christ. He saw Stephen. And to what degree those events were in his head, and to what degree he had wonders and doubts, we don't know. All we know is that Jesus could say to him in the plural, it is hard for thee to kick against the pricks. But Paul was still kicking, but not against this prick. This prick was a light from heaven above the brightness of the sun. And this prick knocked him to the earth. And this prick had a voice attached to it that was addressing Saul personally. And he trembling and astonished. I love that. This is Saul of Tarsus. He wasn't afraid of the chief priests, and he wasn't afraid to travel by himself to Damascus to take men and women, haul them out of their homes, and to bring them back to Jerusalem. This man was not what you would call a timid man. But he's trembling, and he's astonished that someone knows him in heaven. Jesus knows him and addressed him by name. Saul, I am Jesus whom thou persecutest. It is hard for thee to kick against the pricks. And he trembling and astonished said, Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? If we meet Jesus Christ properly, that should be our answer. What do you want me to do? You know, there were soldiers that one time met Jesus Christ via John the Baptist. And they said, what shall we do? And he told them what to do. And there were some men in the day of Pentecost that met Jesus Christ through the preaching of Peter. And they said, men and brethren, what shall we do? And there's an answer usually. There's something for us to do. To confess our sins and to humble ourselves and to seek him. Now the Apostle Paul was going to get something a whole lot harder than baptism. He was going to get ministerial orders of the highest magnitude that included much fine print. And the fine print was all that he was going to suffer for the sake of Jesus Christ because of what he had done to the church of Jesus Christ. But this man said, Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? I don't care how hard you think of someone that you're praying for, or if you think your own heart is full of sin, the Lord Jesus Christ can save you. And if you're pricked at all right now in knowing that you ought to make changes in your life, make them. Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? And brethren, let's all be like this man, who when he rose and was led into the city of Damascus and received strength, What a change we're going to witness in just a few verses. And the Lord said unto him after his request, Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? Total submission. How long did this take, brethren? How long did this take? Ten seconds. When the Lord pricks someone out of love and affection and purpose and glory, it only takes a few seconds. Doesn't take a whole lot of work. How many soul winners were there? I love it. I love your answer. One soul winner, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. The great soul winner. Amen. Total submission, Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? And the Lord said unto him, Arise and go into the city, and it shall be told thee what thou must do. And the men which journeyed with him stood speechless, hearing a voice, but seeing no man. Initially they fell down just like Paul. Trust me, 
We got it. We're going to read 22 later and 26 later, not tonight. Trust me. They all fell down at the beginning, but then they got up when the, when the conversation ended and they were then standing on their feet, speechless, and they heard the voice, but they didn't understand it because in another place we're going to read that they didn't hear the voice. They heard the noise, just like John chapter 12 says, when God spoke to Jesus Christ from heaven once, they thought it was thunder. But Jesus understood the words. Paul understood the words. They just heard the noise. And they're speechless with fear, hearing a voice, but seeing no man. They heard this noise going back and forth. Paul's talking, but they don't see anyone else. And Saul arose from the earth, and when his eyes were opened, he saw no man. But they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And by reading ahead, we can find out exactly what this means, that he saw no man. It wasn't that he was looking around for who was talking to him. It was he couldn't see anything. He was blind. And they led him by the hand. Now, brethren, when the Lord wants to deliver the saints of God, he can deliver. This man was just about to enter the city of Damascus with letters of authority to bind the saints of God. And now he's being led by the hand as a blind man into the city of Damascus. Right. And when it just happens, you know, blind people get used to walking that way. But when you're used to seeing, can you? he went in there tenderly, slowly, cautiously, being led by the hand, knowing that the Lord had just met him and that he was altered because of the experience. Right. And he was three days without sight and neither did eat nor drink. He was blind for three days and he fasted For three days, he had had a personal conversation with the Lord Jesus Christ, was blind because of it, and now he was spending his time fasting. I do not believe there are very many coincidences in the Bible. Now, I'm not a numerologist, but I am not going to just quickly rush over three days for the Apostle Paul to think about the Lord Jesus Christ. But I'm not going to elaborate on it and try to preach something that isn't there, but I want you to think about it just briefly. For three days, Paul thought, without being able to see anything, and without distracting himself with eating or drinking, about meeting the Lord Jesus Christ. He knew what the testimony was, that he had been in the ground three days and three nights and had been raised from the dead because Peter had preached that message just a few times before we got to chapter 9. And there was a certain disciple at Damascus named Ananias. And to him said the Lord in a vision, Ananias, and he said, Behold, I am here, Lord. And the Lord said unto him, Arise, and go into the street which is called Straight, and inquire in the house of Judas for one called Saul of Tarsus. For behold, he prayeth. Visions were common in these days. Because God had poured out his Holy Spirit on the church. Your old men, your young men shall see dreams and visions. And so this man is communicated with from God by a vision. And the Lord appears to him and tells him to go in, gives him specific directions to an address. Go in there and find Saul of Tarsus, for behold, he prayeth. Brethren, that's comforting right there. If you were told, if you were Ananias and you were told to go meet Saul of Tarsus, you would need some comfort. And there's going to be comfort here for the man Ananias. And the first comfort is, behold. Behold means we've got something unusual. Take a look at it. Behold, 
he prayeth. And brethren, I can't say too much about the fact that if you want to measure your spiritual life and your relationship with God, it is measured by prayer. When a man meets Jesus Christ, they pray. I think of Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 6, the first eight verses. When, when in the days of King Isaiah, I saw the Lord high and lifted up. And you can read about Isaiah seeing the glory of God. And he prays. He starts praying a prayer of confession. Woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For I have seen the Lord, the Lord of hosts. Woe is me, a prayer of confession. Then the Lord delivers him from his sins. And the Lord says, whom shall we send and who will go for us? And then it's a prayer of commitment. Here am I. Send me. That's what happens when people meet God. You go over and you look at the great wom- the woman that was a great sinner in her city. When Jesus went and sat at supper with Simon, the Pharisee, that woman came in and she met Jesus Christ and she knew what she needed Jesus Christ for. What did she do? She prayed. You say, she prayed? That is exactly what she was doing when she was at the feet of Jesus begging for mercy and forgiveness and comfort for her wicked soul. And Jesus said, Thy faith has saved thee. Your sins are forgiven. Go in peace. But when someone meets Jesus Christ, they pray. And every time we're slipping away from Jesus Christ, we'll pray less. Those beautiful seasons that you can remember in your life where you prayed more often, where you prayed more fervently, where you prayed more spiritually, were those times of blessing and fatness from the presence of the Lord. And as we drift away, we pray less. Mark my words. Mark God's words. Behold, he prayeth. I've changed this man. Ananias, he prays. Here's some more comfort for Ananias. And and this Saul of Tarsus hath seen in a vision a man named Ananias coming in and putting his hand on him that he might receive his sight. Now that helps, doesn't it? If you were Ananias and you were afraid to meet Saul, but the Lord could tell you, Saul has already seen a vision that you, by name, are going to come in and put your hands on him and give him his sight, wouldn't that encourage you? It would. Then Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard by many of this man how much evil he hath done to thy saints at Jerusalem. And here he hath authority from the chief priests to bind all that call on thy name. But the Lord said unto him, Go thy way, for he is a chosen vessel unto me to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how great things he must suffer for my name's sake. Go do it anyway, Ananias. I know, you're afraid of him. He's praying. He's already seen you coming in and doing this, and he's blind. <laughs> you're going to have to give him his sight. There's not too much harm from a blind man. And he's a, bl- he's a praying blind man, and he's a praying blind man that knows you're coming, and he's a praying blind man that I've already turned in to be one of my apostles. Right. You're just going to give him his sight back and give him the Holy Ghost. Now, what, we'll look at this conversation take place. Verse 17, Ananias went his way and entered into the house and putting his hands on him said, Brother Saul, can you imagine that this moment? Brother Saul, he's got the Saul of Tarsus under his hands. Brother Saul, 
the Lord, even Jesus. Even Jesus, that appeared unto thee in the way as thou camest, hath sent me, that thou mightest receive thy sight, and be filled with the Holy Ghost. And immediately, and immediately, there fell from his eyes as it had been scales. And he received sight forthwith, and arose, and was baptized. Amen. Did Paul's, was Paul's zeal abated at all by conversion? Mm-hmm. Is this man, how, how long did he take for his catechism classes? Mm-hmm. It says that he arose forthwith, his sight, the scales fell off, he could see, and he was baptized. In some of the other testimonies, we'll be told some of the words of Ananias. Now arise and be baptized and wash away thy sins. Acts 22 and verse 16. All those sacrifices of Moses' system that could not put away sins, arise and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ and figuratively wash them all away because he's paid for them all. And he did it. He arose and was baptized. And when he had received meat, he was strengthened. You'd be a little weak after three days of not eating or drinking. So they give him some refreshment and he's strengthened. Then was Saul certain days with the disciples which were at Damascus. But what did he do in that time? And straightway. What does that mean? After six months of thinking about it, after six months of wondering what the will of God was for his life, nothing. Straightway, he preached Christ in the synagogues that he is the Son of God. Now, this man still had some documents on his body that said he was there for the synagogues to find any that worshipped in the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And now instead of going in there looking for their addresses to haul them back to Jerusalem, he's preaching in that name. And this is history. Who cares about Napoleon? This is history. This is a man that turned the world upside down as admitted by his enemies. Napoleon didn't do anything but make a lot of unhappy mothers in many countries. This is sacred history of the Lord Jesus Christ and what he can do in the lives of men. And brethren, if it wasn't for the Apostle Paul to the Gentiles and the effect flowing from him by the grace of God, you and I would be in darkness at this hour. For we are Gentiles and we would be lost without the effect from the Apostle Paul by the grace of God. Jesus Christ changed this man and turned him into one powerhouse Paul only knew one direction in his life, and that was forward, and one speed that was fast. When you read about him in his testimonies, there's about ten of them in the Bible. He was zealous above all of his peers in persecuting the church. And when Jesus Christ converted him, that zeal was just directed toward the cross and toward preaching, and he didn't slow down a bit. Straightway, he preached Christ in the synagogues. And he didn't go do it in someone's house. He didn't do it in an alley, and he didn't hold tent meetings outside of town. He went right into the synagogues where the Jews were and preached Christ that he is indeed the Son of God, the very message that he had been denying. And how long did it take? Immediately. Immediately, straightway, he went and preached Christ. But all that heard him were amazed and said, Is not this he that destroyed them which called on this name in Jerusalem? and came hither for that intent, that he might bring them bound unto the chief priests? They were amazed. But Paul increased the more in strength. The more he preached, the more the Lord opened to him, the more he was taught, 
The more God blessed him by his Holy Spirit, he was strengthened and he increased in that strength and he confounded the Jews which dwelt at Damascus, proving that this is very Christ. You give a man the Holy Ghost, a man like Paul who's got zeal, and that man was able to confound the Jews in these synagogues in Damascus that Jesus was indeed the Christ. To confound someone is to put them to confusion, and Paul was able to do that. He knew their religion better than they did, and now he knew the truth by the blessing of the Holy Ghost. And he was able to confound them. Now we read this. And after that, many days were fulfilled. Now there's something in those words that we only know by the rest of the Bible. And that is that here in these words, or sometime around these words, Paul left the city of Damascus and he went into Arabia. And he spent a good deal of time in Arabia. Then he came back into Damascus. It's in Galatians chapter 1. Galatians chapter 1 is a glorious testimony of the Apostle Paul who said that he persecuted the church of God, but when it pleased God to reveal his son in me that I might preach among the heathen, immediately I conferred not with flesh and blood, and I didn't go to Jerusalem to be taught by the apostles because I didn't receive my gospel from men. I received it by direct revelation of the Lord Jesus Christ. And brethren, I want to certify to you my gospel. That's Galatians 1 verse 11. I certify to you my gospel that it came from God not from men, because I didn't go meet with any apostles after I was converted. I went into Arabia, where the Lord prepared me. After three years, then I went up to Jerusalem to see the apostles. That's not right here. That is the chapter 1 of the book of Galatians, but it's implied here in Luke's little words. And after that, many days were fulfilled. He doesn't tell us what happened in those many days. He expects you to have the whole New Testament and to turn a few pages once in a while. And after that, many days were fulfilled. The Jews took counsel to kill him. But their laying await was known of Saul. And they watched the gates day and night to kill him. Then the disciples took him by night and led him down by the wall in a basket. Now Paul liked this event. This event Mm -hmm. tickled Paul. Because Paul was a well-known man. He had a great reputation. Later he would say that all these things he counted dung, but he had a lot of things to count dung. He was no low man. He was not a mean man. He was a Roman citizen. He was a Hebrew of the Hebrews, a Pharisee of the Pharisees. He had a perfect lineage all the way back to the tribe of Benjamin, and he had been trained at the feet of that great rabbi, Gamaliel. He had a great reputation. But this man with this great reputation who could go to the chief priests and be given letters of authority to go into another strange city that had its own king and to take citizens of that city and haul them back to Jerusalem bound. Now that's a man that's got some reputation. But do you know how he left town? In a basket. And do you know what? The Apostle Paul is proud of that because it humbles him in the sight of men and God And Paul enjoys being humbled. Listen to this, brethren, as Paul describes this event elsewhere in the New Testament. The God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which is blessed forevermore, knoweth that I lie not. Now, why would he invoke the name of God in an oath? Because what he's about to tell you is hard to believe. In Damascus, the governor, under Aretas the king, kept the city of the Damascenes with a garrison. 
desirous to apprehend me. And through a window, in a basket, was I let down with a wall and escaped his hands. I was put in a basket and let down by a wall, and that's how I got out of the city. Now that is not a conquering hero. But the Apostle Paul brought that up in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, where he's listing all those things that humbled him before the Lord and the things that the God had done in his life. He liked that event because it humbled him. That man was willing to do anything for the cause of the Lord Jesus Christ, even lay in a basket and be lowered from a city wall. Back to Acts chapter 9. Verse 26, And when Saul was come to Jerusalem, he essayed to join himself to the disciples. But they were all afraid of him and believed not that he was a disciple. He tried to join the church at Jerusalem. That would be like Pope John Paul II coming in here some Sunday morning and wanting to join our church. Would all of you believe that we ought to take him in? Or would you have a few questions to ask him? Saul of Tarsus coming into an assembly in Jerusalem asking to join with the saints there. You know, and I've mentioned this before, there'd be relatives sitting there that would have tombstones in the church cemetery because of that man. And he wants to join. He wants to commune with us. He wants to sit with us, eat with us. And when Saul was come to Jerusalem, he essayed to join himself to the disciples But they were all afraid of him and believed not that he was a disciple. They were not convinced by his testimony. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared unto them how he had seen the Lord in the way and that he had spoken to him and how he had preached boldly at Damascus in the name of Jesus. Barnabas vouches for him. And so in the testimony of two, with a witness to confirm his word, He was with them coming in and going out at Jerusalem in verse 28. But he is not your average member. And he spake boldly in the name of the Lord Jesus and disputed against the Grecians, but they went about to slay him. Now the Grecians were Greeks who had been proselytized by the Jews and had become Jews. But they had a Greek background, knew the Greek language, were well-versed in Greek poets, Greek learning, Greek education, and Paul took them on because, guess where Paul had been raised? In Tarsus, a city of Greece. And so he took on these Grecians because he knew their language, their training, their, their authors, and the gospel of Jesus Christ, and the Jews' religion, which they had converted to. Was he qualified? And he... He disputed against the Grecians, and they went about to slay him. Now, why did they want to kill him? Because they couldn't answer his arguments. And isn't that the way it always is? When error and heresy cannot answer your arguments, they just try to kill you for presenting them. And so it is here. Paul was once on their side, trying to kill the saints there in Jerusalem and killing them like Stephen, because Stephen disputed with them, and they couldn't resist the wisdom with which he spake. But here we have Paul doing the disputing now, and they go about to slay him. But he had some good brethren there already in the church of Jerusalem, which when the brethren knew, as soon as they knew that there were plans to take his life, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him forth to Tarsus. So he sails back across the Mediterranean Sea and ends up back in Tarsus, which is a city of Cilicia and Syria, which is exactly where Galatians 1 
tells us he ended up after having come to Jerusalem after three years. I just want to tie those two passages in for you. Now we have this little verse stuck in by Luke between Paul and Peter. Then had the churches rest throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria and were edified. They had been chased and scattered, blown apart. Remember back there at the beginning of Acts chapter 8? They had been scattered all over that part of the country because of the tremendous persecution that arose there in Jerusalem. But now that the Apostle Paul had been converted, and he was such a zealous component of that persecution, it just kind of floated away for a little while. And they had a respite from the Lord Jesus Christ from persecution. And they were edified. They were built up. They were strengthened. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Ghost were multiplied. Now, haven't we read that word a few other times? Working our way to Acts chapter 9? This is a good... This is when the Lord pours out his blessing on the earth. Multiplied. They didn't have additions. They were multiplied. And they've been multiplied several times. And they're walking in the fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Ghost. Those are two things we want. The fear of the Lord, to cease from sinning, and to keep his commandments, and the comfort of the Holy Ghost, the strength and peace and joy of the Holy Ghost. This is a description of a true church that's under the blessing of God. Right here, one verse, stuck in between Paul and Peter. For us to look at and realize that is our goal, that's my goal for this church, is that we would walk in the fear of the Lord, in the comfort of the Holy Ghost, that we would be edified together, and that if God chooses, he might multiply us. Verse 32, we jump to another character, Peter. And it came to pass, as Peter passed throughout all quarters, visiting all these scattered saints, he came down also to the saints which dwelt at Lydda, found a small church there, and there he found a certain man named Anus, which had kept his bed eight years and was sick of the palsy. The palsy is a paralyzing disease in which you can't move. Most of you have seen a, a good little movie, and I can't put those words together very many times, but a good little movie entitled The Woman Who Willed a Miracle. And you'll remember that that Leslie Lemke in that movie had the palsy. And his mother hauled him around for 16 years without a twitch because he had the palsy. Well, here's a man that had the palsy eight years and had been bedridden for those eight years, kept his bed eight years, was sick of the palsy. But Peter meets him. Remember, Luke is convincing Theophilus that Jesus Christ is indeed the Son of God. And Peter said unto him, Enos, Jesus Christ maketh thee whole. Arise and make thy bed. And he arose immediately. For eight years, 2,500 and some days, He'd been bedridden, and the city knew it. And Luke tells Theophilus it's a certain man named Enos. And the Lord healed him by Peter, and Peter said, Jesus Christ maketh thee whole. The glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the man takes up his bed immediately and is healed. 
And all that dwelt at Lydda and Siren saw him and turned to the Lord. See what these miracles were for? Two cities entirely turned to the Lord because of a miracle. And like Charlie pointed out earlier tonight, there wasn't any guessing about this. They knew the man and had watched him for eight years. These characters, they rolled down in wheelchairs. We don't know if there's paid staff members or what at some of these healing conferences that go on in our country. But the whole city knew about this man. And he'd been in that condition for eight years. And he didn't stagger to his feet. He didn't crawl home. He didn't, he wasn't carried home with the prognosis that he's going to get better. It says, He arose immediately. That's the healing power of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Now there was a Joppa. The Luke's just pouring these, just putting these stories one on top of another to convince Theophilus of the glory of Christ and his power in the early church. Now there was at Joppa a certain disciple named Tabitha, which by interpretation is called Dorcas. This woman was full of good works and alms deeds, which she did. And it came to pass in those days that she was sick and died, whom when they had washed, they laid her in an upper chamber. And forasmuch as Lydda was nigh to Joppa, and the disciples had heard that Peter was there, they sent unto him two men, desiring him that he would not delay to come to them. Now, brethren, it's not healthy to have dead bodies around for long. I've read these verses many, many times, and I'm going to trust the Holy Ghost that he gave us, gave them to us exactly in the way that he wants us to have them. I don't believe this is a Jairus' daughter situation, nor a Lazarus situation. She died. They washed her, put her in an upper room, and went and got Peter. Because the Holy Ghost doesn't tell us that she was sick, and they sent for Peter. But then she happened to die before Peter got there. This city was very close by. Now, this is a lot of faith. But you know what happens to those that have a lot of faith? They get great blessings. And they sent to Lydda for Simon Peter with a dead woman in an upper chamber. That is faith. Then Peter arose and went with them. When he was come, they brought him into the upper chamber. And all the widows stood by him weeping and showing the coats and garments which Dorcas made while she was with them. But Peter put them all forth. And brethren, he was a mighty apostle that the very shadow of his could heal the sick, but I want you to know what he did. He put them all out of the room. They were asking him to do something incredible. He put them all out of the room, and it's what we all ought to do when we have trouble in our lives. He kneeled down and prayed. Amen. And turning him to the body, said, Do you know what faith this would take from a fisherman like Peter? Tabitha, arise. Wow. And she opened her eyes. And when she saw Peter, she sat up. And he gave her his hand, lifted her up, and when he had called the saints and widows, presented her alive. May I present to you, Tabitha. And it was known throughout all Joppa, and many believed in the Lord. 
And it came to pass that he tarried many days in Joppa with one Simon a tanner. Why did Peter waste time tarrying in Joppa with one Simon a tanner? Anybody here want to wager? He was fixing to meet Cornelius, the providence of God, arranging that a man named Cornelius is about to send to Joppa for one Simon Peter, who is living with one Simon the Tanner. Brethren, that's Acts chapter 9. There's no sinner too great for the Lord Jesus Christ. Look at the change he wrought in Saul of Tarsus. Look at the power in his life. Brethren, we can have confidence and hope if we're praying for someone or in our own hearts that Jesus Christ can turn us around and save us. He did it to Saul. And I want to remind you, I didn't turn you to the passage, but I've referred to it. 1 Timothy 1 says that the Apostle Paul was saved as an example for all of us for the long-suffering of God and His mercy. Because that for every one of us that would believe on I exhort you to believe on Him and humble yourself before Him before you face Him on His judgment seat. Amen. May Jesus Christ be praised. Amen.